Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 7. By grace through faith. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. No one likes a show off, but if we're honest, we all like to do a little bit of showing off. Hi, my name's Howard. It's my privilege to lead Westminster Chapel and it's a privilege to be able to talk with you today about real hope being made manifest, embodied in God's people, the church. I just would love out there if you're not a show off, if you've never showed off, if you could just go in the chat, I think it's over there somewhere, um, and just let us know your name and how come you, you manage not to show off. You may have picked up that that's a bit of a trick. Um, sorry about that, because if you show off in the chat about not showing off, you are by definition still a show off. I think there's need in each of us to show off, though. It reveals something that there's there's a longing for approval in all of us. We all ultimately need right relationship with God and to hear the words over our life. Well done, good and faithful servant. But our showing off is, is very different to God's showing off. That's the point I really want to make. Ours is tainted with sin and selfishness. God is full of selflessness and it's about service and blessing towards others. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us this. So that in the coming ages, that's all the ages now and into eternity with Jesus Christ when he makes all things new, he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace, unmerited favour in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This tells me that God doesn't want anybody to live, especially his people, the church, to live with a spitting image caricature of what he's really like. God wants his nature, his goodness to be made manifest through the hands and feet embodiment of his church. So that if you touch the church, you touch the divine, you touch heaven and you encounter the greatest hope available in the world. But there's there's a problem. There's a there's a challenge. And it's that many people in our culture today and even some in the church, particularly looking at the Old Testament, would see God the Father as some kind of Shrek like ogre a monster. 
angry, indifferent and uncaring. And so they miss his burning heart of love. This really matters because what you ultimately believe and then behold about God will shape what you become, will shape how you behave, what what becomes of your life will be impacted by how you view and perceive God. So today, I want to help you. Well, I, I want to see by the Spirit your heart to be warmed as we draw closer to the burning heart of God together. And I've got four points to help us with that. The first of those is, but God comes from the very first words of verse four. But is a contrasting word. The painful truth, though, of Ephesians chapter two, the first three verses is that human beings are spiritually dead. That we have willingly become enslaved by the world, the flesh and the devil. And this explains why there is so much suffering in the world. But God is contrasted with the, all of that. He comes in the opposite, the, the contrasting spirit to the disobedience that's at work in human beings. But our challenge is that we often humanise God and don't see this contrasting difference. The mathematical genius Blaise Pascal once put it like this. He says, God made man in his image. And ever since, man has been returning the compliment. We make man, we make God in man's image. And because we're fallen and limited, it's not a good picture that we create of God. God is so much more than some kind of omnipotent Superman. He's wholly other, set apart in unspoiled splendor, glory and beauty. He is absolute perfection. And it is this set apartness that God seeks to give to his church. Only we've been trying far too hard to, to blend in. A non-Christian author writes about this in The Spectator. It's a article titled uh, The Irony, The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. And he speaks about the sexual unfaithfulness of Justin Bieber's cool Hillsong pastor. This is what he wrote. If someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Let's make people really, really uncomfortable by the beautiful otherworldly way that we live as we follow the countercultural way of Jesus Christ. So this has then been the but part of this phrase, but God, but let's look at the God part now, because it doesn't say but man or but angels, it's but God. God saves us, it's all of his work. We contribute nothing to our salvation except sin, and so God should get all the glory. So if you happen to think that you're a Christian because you consider yourself to be a good person and you haven't done any harm to others, you really haven't understood this yet. You're actually thinking far too much of yourself and too little of 
of God. And perhaps the Christian faith for you is just more about what it can add to your life, how it personally benefits you. And this is something called individualism, which plagues Christianity and our culture today. Actually, the Christian faith isn't primarily about you. It's about God because what he's done for you. And then it's about his church, that you are saved not so much as an individual, although you are saved individually, but you're saved as part of the people of God. Today, we call that the church. The very language that Paul uses in his letter and in Ephesians chapter two is the language of plurality. We read us, we, our, you, plural, and then us, us, us again. Our lives are not primarily me, me, me. They are about God because of what he's done. But that doesn't mean that you stop existing, but it means that you'll only really start living as you put God first in your life, as you honour him rightly for what he has done. You need to be able to say with a smile, I die to self and I am happily second to God. And actually that statement, I am second, should really be I am third, because we are called as followers of Christ to put the interests of others above our own. That is fundamentally what Jesus did in the way that he lived and on the cross. We're to discover the joy of giving above getting. And in doing so, again, we reveal this countercultural, beautiful way to the world that should make the world feel very uncomfortable. And it's the joining of our imperfect, yes, ways of doing this together, our imperfect little lights coming together. But they come together to form a big, powerful, strong light as a local church, a lighthouse beam that can guide people safely home. I wonder, are you fully aligned to a local church, to Westminster Chapel? Are I, is, is your course just a few degrees off course because of individualism? Has that individual just pulled you off course to make church a little bit more about you? Well, the danger is it's just a few degrees off course over time can result in you being very far away from God's destination for your life. And you'll miss out on God's best for you. So we've done. But God, Paul continues, being rich in mercy. This is the second point merciful God. But what is mercy? It is heartfelt compassion for the pain and misery that sin brings to others. And God is rich in it. It says his very being is full of mercy. Being rich in mercy doesn't say becoming rich in mercy as if he has to acquire mercy. No, mercy is an essential part of God's very being and nature, which means he can't run out of mercy. He's the manufacturer of it. He has limitless supplies of it. And this is how he's revealed in scripture to help remove any tepid, lower, diminished views of him. Exodus chapter 34. God reveals his name, his nature, his character to Moses. Verse six, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The very first characteristic that God chooses to reveal of himself there is his mercy. 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse three, it says that God is the father of mercies. He's the source, the father, the, the originator of mercy. And he's got abundant reservoirs for mer of mercy to reach every and any type of sin. 
The Puritan Thomas Goodwin expressed it brilliantly like this. It is natural for God to show mercy, but not so to punish, which is his strange work. I'll get to that in a moment. He, God, has in himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. There is mercy in God for every failure, every wandering away from him. And we should be in awe of this divine quality characteristic of God that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve it should flow out of us define us and be ministered through us to the world it is not God's deepest heart to punish he must punish in order to uphold the goodness of his very nature but it is not his deepest heart we see that in Lamentations chapter 3 um, and verse 33, and that is the central part, if you follow the way that lamentation is structured, it's the central message of the whole book. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart. God's deepest heart for you is for merciful reconciliation, restoration. It's that he would reach into the deepest miseries that you are experiencing with the fullness and answer them with the fullness of his beautiful person. This compassion then should come naturally to, to God's, God's people as experienced recipients of this mercy. This phrase, the deserving poor, should be re repugnant really to the church. Mercy ministry shouldn't just be some side activity. It should be front and centre of what the church does. And so we must build Westminster Chapel on the great foundation of showing mercy that we have to go more and more and more with mercy to a needy world as we seek to, as divine recipients of mercy, to bless, B-L-E-S-S, -S, everybody with mercy. The clearest embodiment of this merciful compassion, this gut aching compassion for those in need was, of course, Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation, revelation of the heart of the father. And in the first century biographies about Jesus, they describe him with this gut level deep in the most inner part of him. Today, we would call it his heart, that he experiences a sort of holy discontent and inner anguish as he must with urgency move with love towards those in need. And this compassion often seems to open the door to miraculous breakthrough. Matthew 14 verse 14. Jesus has compassion and then he heals the sick. Matthew 15 verse 32. He has compassion on the crowd and then he miraculously feeds them. I wonder, do you feel God's compassion 
for the people who don't make it in our dog-eat-dog unforgiving society? Can you taste their misery because of sin, whether it's their own, others, or just the very sinful structures that they live in? My prayer is that God would melt our hearts again with his mercy, that we might look with new and fresh eyes as we walk the neighbourhoods and the streets in which we live, or maybe where we work, that we might move with compassion. And as we recover the sense of compassion, that compassion, I dare say, may become the very key that God uses to unlock revival power through the church. So we've looked at but God, merciful God. Now we're going to look at loving God. This is not just any love. Paul says because of the great love. I say it's the greatest of all loves because it says as well, it comes when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were sinners. Even though there was nothing, absolutely nothing lovable about us, God still loves us. And this love is made most clear and it's also most misunderstood at the cross. Let me tell you a story to illustrate. Bombardier Robert Key was killed in the Second World War. The army report of his death said that he died for because of messing around with a grenade. Because of that embarrassing death, way to die, his family didn't speak to him for 65 years. That is until the mayor of the French town of Anazin, where this took place in, got in touch with the family because they wanted to name a road after Robert. And then the truth came out. What Bombardier Key had done is that he'd seen a group of children playing with a grenade and a boy in that group had taken the pin out of the grenade. Seeing that, he grabbed the grenade, he clutched it to his chest and he ran as far as he could away from those children to protect them before he exploded with that grenade. To his family, he was a fool. To the French town of Anazin, he was a hero. I wonder if we can misunderstand the cross in the same way. That to some, Jesus is a fool. But to others, they can see him as a hero. God the Father, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit come together at the cross in perfect loving accord to bring about salvation. Jesus willingly suffers, endures the wrath of God upon himself in order to atone, to pay for our guilt for sin. But also he defeats the evil powers of sin in this world, the world, the flesh and the devil, so that you through faith in Jesus can be liberated from them completely by this extraordinary expression of love. He dies to express how much he loves you. This enemy loving, enemy embracing love is what we are called to showcase to the world because we're recipients of this love. We enjoy this love. We must bask in this love every day. Jesus came and he took the grenade from us, the judgment we deserve for our sin. So how could you? How should you love others 
in maybe small little ways, but lots and lots of them, every single day to showcase this love to the world, that they might have hope. So we've looked at but God, we've done merciful God, we've done loving God, we're now going to look at gracious God again to dispel small thinking, tepid thoughts about God. We have an enlarged view of just how awesome he is. In many ways, this final point is a summation of all the others together. It's not just that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. It's that he's about blessing us beyond our wildest dreams. We're not only made alive in Christ, we are seated in heavenly places, verse 6, with Christ. We don't only share in the resurrection, we share in the exaltation through faith. Our union with him demands that this be so. So right now, you're probably sat on a chair or a sofa. But if you trusted in Christ, that is a lesser reality of where your bottom, your posterior truly resides. The greater reality is that you're you're seated in, in heaven. You've been taken out of the world and taken out of the, the ruling, uh, reigning area of Satan. This, this reality is not your home anymore. It should be strange to you. It would be strange if it wasn't strange to you. People should notice that you're different that you speak differently, perhaps. It's a little bit like Peter after the crucifixion, where people noticed that his accent was different. He was from the north, from Galilee, and they recognised that and said, you're one of those followers of Jesus. People should recognise that you're different. You don't belong. Even because of the way that you speak, your, your accent, your conversation is seasoned with the salt, with the grace and goodness of the gospel. You've been taken out of the realm of Satan. He can't control you anymore. He could shout and he can tempt, but he can't separate you ever from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is great news. Did you notice as well that Jesus is seated or that we're seated with the seated Jesus? He's not standing. He's seated as an expression that he's at rest, that his victory is complete. There's no uncertainty in heaven. There's no sort of worry or fear, anxiety over the future about how things will work out. It's absolutely guaranteed. The victory is certain and you get to be able to sit with Jesus at rest, enjoying peace. But this picture of being seated has another layer to it. Being seated is also an expression of of ruling from a throne. We get to rule with the seated Jesus. He's ruling from his throne and we're ruling with him. So get this, you're seated in heaven, safe, secure, seated in heavenly places so that you can stand firm and strong on the earth, showcasing the glory of God. You're not just a citizen of heaven, you're an ambassador of God. God is at work in each of us, individually and collectively, awakening us to mobilise, to manifest who he is to a lost and needy world. This really is holy ground. It's what the brilliant former minister at the chapel, amazing preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, described as the most overwhelming thought that we could ever lay hold of 
that this amazing God of mercy, love and grace would seek to vindicate, yes, vindicate his own nature and character through us, the church. God's wise plan of salvation, people from all different tribes and nations coming together to worship him of what Revelation 17 is a picture of in the future. It cannot but be successful. It's impossible for it to, to fail. God will beautify his church. God will robe you in white with his righteousness. God will complete the good work that he began in you. Why? Because his, his very character is at stake. He must vindicate his own nature. If he left anything unfinished, then Satan would get the glory for eternity. And that cannot be. God cannot allow that to happen. His character cannot allow that possibility. He must be victorious. And this is really, really encouraging. Let me give you two thoughts that this should awaken in us. The first is confidence. That God is at work in you and in us as a church to transform us, to make us fruitful for his glory. This must be so because he must vindicate his character through us. <laughs> Nothing can stand against his church in that sense. And so when you go out the rest of today and throughout this week and you're a bit nervous about witnessing or, or how to share your faith, you can be confident and go with holy boldness as an ambassador of God, knowing that he's going to back you because God is about vindicating his character, and his, his nature, his purposes on the earth through the church. The second thing is it should awaken reverence in us. Because this is an incredibly high calling, an extraordinary privilege that we are given. We really should be saying those same words that David had. Who am I? Who am I, God? That you would choose me to bless my family line, to give me this vision of the future. It's extraordinary that God would let the church be his crowning glory to manifest his wisdom and his unparalleled beauty to all the rulers, powers and authorities in heaven and on earth. And he does it through us. Who, who am I? Who, who are we? Sinners who deserve who are given such a glorious purpose and destiny. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. That should be the mantra of every believer in this time. What a privilege he's given us. Let's make the most of it. May God give each of us, may God give you a vision, an enlarged understanding of just how gloriously beautiful he is. All lesser thinking about him would just fall away as we are all gripped by God so that we will go for him. Here's my final question. How could you show off, showcase God's greatness today and throughout this week? Let me pray. Oh, amazing God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, I thank you so much that you're so holy and other and different from us, that therefore we have hope. Lord, I pray, help us to live countercultural Christ-like lives that reveal your great mercy 
your incredible love and the riches of your grace to this lost and needy world. Move in our hearts. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the assurance of knowing that we are seated in heaven. We cannot be unseated and therefore we can be strong here on earth for you and your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.